Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark 7. And as you're turning there, let me give you a little background information that we probably need for this. And uh, it comes from uh, the word Pharisee. And when we hear the word Pharisee as modern people, we automatically think negatively about that um, because it's a little bit like the word Nazi in our language. It's such a bad term. We don't want to use the word Pharisee. But for people who are originally reading this, it would strike them very differently because for them, these were their cultural religious heroes. These are the people they thought, this is the person I want my children to be like. These are the people I want my children to emulate and be the example. I want this to be somebody who shapes my life, and these are the the people we look to for leadership. And so as we're reading through this, I want you to kind of get that in your mind, that this would have been shocking for people in the first century. And uh, what was his name? I was reading this week, and there was an author who said that uh, this is probably the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament because of something that he said, because of something Jesus said to the Pharisees that challenged the deepest assumptions they had about their relationship with God. So, in honor of God and his word, let me invite you to stand if you're willing and able as we read Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 30. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And this is Mark's explanation. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God, in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is a gift given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see? that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, 
since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to their dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for, and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Let's pray and ask God to train us and teach us today. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for this passage. We're grateful that uh, this episode happened in back-to-back in succession. And we pray this morning as we talk about it, as we look at it, that you would bless our reading, our study, our hearts, our minds. Would you help us to see us, see ourselves in these pages, and as a result, to repent and to turn away from these things. But especially we ask that you would enable us to see you. You were kind to us in our brokenness. You are gentle with us in our frailty. You are forgiving with, to us in our sin. And so we pray, Lord, that we would see you all over again and that the gospel would be fresh anew in our hearts. Would you bless us and be with us, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Please be seated. There we go. So my daughter is in a Bible study, and, uh, and she really likes the girls that are in the Bible study, and uh, she... I asked her if I could tell her the story. So, so just so you know, my wife in the back is like, did you ask Catherine? Yes, I asked Catherine. And so um, she was in this Bible study, and it was really good, really good conversation. She likes the girls in it. And as they were getting through with one of their conversations, one of the girls in the Bible study said she is terrified of standing before God and giving an account of her life. And so standing there, and she's hoping that the good she's done will outweigh the bad things she's done, or that God will see that she sincerely tried to do these good things. And so as they started talking, people in the room were beginning to say, oh yeah, that scares me, that frightens me, standing before God and doing that. And so Catherine was listening to this, and she was saying, yeah, that's a scary thought. But then she said, oh wait, they're not bringing Jesus into this conversation, because Jesus has paid for our sins. And so she started to have this conversation with them about the reality that when we stand before the judgment seat of God, we're, you know, whatever we say is going to be, God, Jesus is going to be pointing to the cross, we're going to be pointing to the cross, because that's the place where the judgment for our sins fell 2,000 years ago. And I was thinking, how is it that they were missing the central piece of standing before the throne of God's grace with confidence And it's because of the way that we do kind of some mental math for ourselves. You know, when you think about equations, uh, Paul took the SAT on uh, Saturday. I'm sure he rocked out. He made a 19 million, I think, on that. (laughs) 
Um, and so we, uh, I just lost my train of thought. Boarding at the station. Mm. So where was I? Oh, talking about something. And uh, where was I before I said the 19 million? Daughter, Catherine, go on across. Yeah, there we go. So mental math that we do. And I was listening to a, uh, someone this week, and he was explaining the way that we put together the equation and the way it works itself out is most, you know, the, the way that the equation goes biblically is we believe, and, re- and that's one, and then two, we receive all the blessings of the gospel. We are justified, we're forgiven, we're adopted, we're brought into, so we're saved. And then out of that comes our obedience, right? So obedience in the Christian life comes after believing and being completely saved and restored to God. So that happens right when we become a Christian. But the way that most of us do this math is we believe, and then we work, and then we don't know if we're going to be saved until we stand before the judgment seat of God where he's looking at all of our works and parsing them out, and we're trying to figure out, did I do enough? And so in that sense, we're saved by, in that mindset, by faith and works, and then at the end, we're saved, but that's not what the scripture says. In fact, in this passage, what Jesus is doing is he is closing the door on works righteousness. Our works do not make us right with God. They never did, neither in part nor in whole. It never has, it never will. It's the work of Jesus on our behalf uh, that makes us right with God. In this passage, Jesus closes the door on that, and this is something we have to say to ourselves over and over and over because we forget. Martin Luther said this. He said, the truth of the gospel of grace is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads and our own heads continually. Because if, if you think that God accepts you in any way because of your work, you will either be dishonest with yourself and the world or you'll be discouraged and maybe even in despair because you realize, I can't do this. But either way, you will feel far from God. And no one can come in through works, this passage says, but anyone can come in through faith. So let's kind of dive into this passage and take a look at it. First thing is uh, we see some incredible clarity on the gospel in this. Uh, The conflict of this passage begins when Pharisees confront Jesus about ceremonial washing. Now, these were things that were not prescribed in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the Pharisees set up fences around God's law and said, we're going to keep as far from these as possible. But these things began to become central and even in some cases become more important to them than God's law. So keep the fences. We, gotta, we have to do this. And so in 7.2, 7, we read this. The Pharisees saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that's unwashed. That means if they were defiled, which means they couldn't go into the synagogue, they couldn't go into the temple to worship uh, because they were defiled. And so they then confronted Jesus with a question in 7.5, is why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, Jesus' response to them feels a little bit sharper than usual for Jesus. In fact, I have a friend who looks at these passages and says he loves seeing this side of Jesus because he says, Jesus is gangsta. He doesn't hold back. He just lets people have it. He doesn't back down. He doesn't back off. He just says what he's thinking. Um, but I, I don't think it's because Jesus is gangsta. I think it's because their question is not really a question. 
And when is a question not really a question? Is when it's a power play, like here. They weren't asking Jesus a question. They were saying, explain yourself. We're the ones in authority here. You explain yourself to us. And so Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't explain himself to them. Instead, he turns tables a little bit, and he says, let me explain you to you, right? I'm not explaining myself to you. I'm explaining you to you. And so he says they're hypocrites. They're not doing what they claim to be doing. There's, so in that word in, in the Greek is a, is a mask that actors would wear. So they would wear, you know, their Darth Vader helmet or whatever, and they'd, they would speak, and people in the back could hear what they were saying. So it's a mask, and so it's a facade. It's a ruse. It's not... They were pretending at this to some degree. And even if they were sincere, they were not able to do what they thought they were doing, which is keeping themselves from being defiled in their lives. And and Jesus explains why in chapter 7, verses 20 and 21, when he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come all sorts of sins. Now, I... I didn't, I knew this, but I didn't know this until this past week. We were in our Bible study on Tuesday, the men's study, and somebody brought up this uh, online uh, debate between really a, a Christian and somebody who's Jewish. And so there's this debate between these two people about, um, of all things, pornography and sexual sin. And as these two men were talking, you got a sense they both, they had a different understanding of where sin lay. So for the, for the man who was Jewish, He said that sin is something that really exists kind of outside of you. You can do it or not do it. You can engage it or not, but you can control it. It it exists outside of you. And the Christian was saying, no, it's something that's inside of you. It it, it exists inside of you. It's part of your internal wiring and your internal makeup. Um, So in this first view, which seems to be what the, the Jews here think, is it's outside of you. So I can go and I can wash it off. I can get rid of it. And if I, if I come in contact with any kind of sin out there, I can just avoid it. Or if I'm tempted in some way, I can just avoid it. And so I can avoid saying I have any kind of sin in my life whatsoever. But Jesus is pressing this. And he says, no, it's in our hearts. And that's the revolutionary idea that this man was talking about earlier. It's not outside of us. It's inside of us. And this is such a basic thing that in chapter 7, verse 18, when Jesus says to his, uh, his disciples, then are, with you, are you without understanding? So what he's saying is this is so basic and foundational. How can we be missing this? This is inside of us. What's inside is the problem. So Jesus is saying here with real clarity, Sin is not outside of you. It's already inside of you. And what's already inside of you is what makes you unclean because it's in your heart. Now, the heart for us is, you know, we think about Valentine's and things. We've been taught to think heart and mind are two different, completely different things, and these are in conflict with each other. When, he talk, when the Bible talks about the heart, it says it's the wellspring of life back in the Old Testament, which means everything about you. Um, what's the word I was looking for this week? It's not distilled. It was the other one. Now, we, we boil it down so it's like, Reduce, thank you. Somebody, so you, you boil something down and you get it to its most pure essence. That's in your heart, right? And so the water of life comes across that and everything come out of, coming out of you comes out of your heart. Your thinking, your values, your interactions, your choices, your decisions, everything comes out of your heart. That's the core of who you are. And so what Jesus is saying is what makes you, you is, is in the heart, 
And Jesus says here in verses 21 to 22, it's from out of the heart that evil thoughts, immorality, deceit, envy, that sin manifests itself and comes out. It's, it's from the core of who you are, and it comes out, and you can't help for it to come out no matter what form you try, you try for it to take, like cultural form. And so to help you understand this, uh, I brought my handy-dandy Play-Doh Fun Factory, okay? Leah, I'm going to need your help on this. You want to go here? <laughs> this nervous laughter. Okay. So here's what I want you to kind of picture in this. Is, uh, inside of this is, this is your heart. And whatever's in your heart comes out. Now, the thing that's wonderful, wonderful about the Play-Doh Fun Factory is it has all these different shapes you can use here, right? So there's a, there's a hose. There's some squiggly thing. I don't know what that is. Is that the bat signal? I don't know what that is. And, and there's a leaf, and here's a star, right? So what, what we want is we want maybe a, a blue star, so we're going to put it over here and maybe get a blue star out of this. And so if I squeeze it, it's going to take a particular shape, but it's always going to be the same color coming out, right? So don't squeeze it yet. I've got to get the board. Rebecca said I've got to make sure we don't put this on the floor so Diana doesn't get mad at us. Okay. So squeeze that out. So we're looking for a blue plate. It's not blue, right? It's a yellow or orange star. Squeeze it all out. Just go ahead. Now, I'm going to get you to taste it. I'm just kidding. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Take some to your dad over there. It's good. You want that little piece right there? Take it. There you go. You can put that by your bedside table and remember this moment for the rest of your life. It's good. Okay. So, you want it? You done? You want to take this with you? Okay, you got it. Okay. okay. Now, oh, I'll take this and use it again. So, let's say I wanted blue Play-Doh to come out. It's not going to come out, is it? Do you know why? because there was only yellow in here, that orangey yellow. So it doesn't matter which of these I put on. If I do it on the hose, it's still going to be yellow-orange. If I do it on the squiggly bat signal here, it's still going to be orangish-yellow because that's what's inside of it, and that's what's coming out. So as we begin to talk uh, culturally, talk culturally about who we are and what's going on, the same thing that's in everybody else is inside of us. We all have the same thing inside of us, whether you're on the right or the left whether you are conservative or whether you are liberal, whether you are um, progressive or whether you're traditional, whether you're Republican or whether you're Democrat, we all have the same thing inside of us. It just comes out as a star sometimes. Sometimes for some people it comes out as a hose. Some people it comes out as a set of little squiggly worms, right? All those things you can have the Plato Fun Factory, but the only thing that's going to come out is what's inside of it. So that means with the Pharisees here, they may be able to look down on the prostitutes and all the other people out there, but Jesus is saying the same thing that's in them is in you. It's just there's a different cultural form, and this is what's coming out of, of them. So uh, what comes out of the Pharisees? Well, as we look at this, there's an antagonism, there's anger, there's animosity. Uh, there's constant criticism and comparison to other people that are out there. Right? That comes from pride, that comes from arrogance, that comes from kind of being self-absorbed and self-focused which is what all of us do, right? Tim Keller says this. He says, you got the quote? Yes. There we go. The default mode of the human heart, whether you're religious or irreligious, is self-salvation and works righteousness, whether of a conservative or a liberal variety. Christians theoretically believe Jesus accepts me, therefore I want to live a good life. But their hearts reverse that and in practice function on the principle I live a good life, therefore Jesus will accept me. And the, re 
the results of this reversal include pride, defensiveness, a critical spirit, racial prejudice, and cultural ethnocentricity, and allergy to change and other forms of spiritual deadness. Revival always proceeds around a rediscovery of the wonder of grace and the radical nature of Christ's accomplishment of salvation on our behalf, leading to a joyful repentance, a sense of being so loved that we can finally admit the flaws and sins that we have denied or hidden. So Jesus is having a discussion here with us, not to condemn us, but to free us from the trap of thinking, I have to, it's up to me, when we know we can't. Jesus is making it utterly clear that no one has ever been made right with God by what we do. It was never about what we do. It's always about embracing the reality of what Jesus has done for us in our salvation. And so what that means is we come to him empty-handed, and we say, have mercy on me, a sinner. I have nothing. I have no resume, no excuses, no promises, just believing that you are kind and gracious to someone like me. That's it. And that's all I have. So Jesus, in this passage, he's closing the door on any kind of works righteousness, saying the Pharisees couldn't do it, you can't do it. The Pharisees would never be able to do it, you will never be able to do it. So what do you do? And at this point, he's opening the door to show us this is the doorway in. It's the doorway of grace. So we go back into our passage, but we go past the passage with uh, the Pharisees, and we go into the passage about the Syrophoenician woman. So there's this great juxtaposition between these two people, those two groups of people, um, where Jesus, who is God in the flesh, reveals to us what kind of person is acceptable to him. Who can enter? Who's not going to enter? Who, uh, who has his affection, who receives grace, and who doesn't? And so when the Pharisees come, Jesus is sharp with them. But when the Gentile woman who has dabbled with demons comes, we see something different. So here's a woman in the passage, and... Uh, Everything that's here is communicating, not only does she not have merit, she has demerits, things that should keep her in everybody's eyes away from uh, the goodness of God, the blessing of God. So we're going to look at actually this a little more next week, uh, her story, because I think it's worth just kind of digging in a little bit. Um, but I love the way this is held in contradistinction to the passage with the Pharisees. It teaches us something. She never washed her hands to be ceremonially clean. She never sacrificed at the temple. She's a, a pagan Canaanite living in a pagan Gentile area, which means that she worshiped foreign gods. So she didn't even keep the first commandment, you shall have no gods before me. Her daughter had a demon, and probably because of her religious practices, the mother is largely at fault for this. She has nothing to offer Jesus, not her race, not her religion, not her resume. The only thing that she has to offer him is her need. So she comes to him with her need and her bare bones faith. No works, no public service, no gifts to the poor, no moral deeds, nothing. There's no period of mourning, just need, and that's all. And so when she comes to Jesus, she expresses her need, and then Jesus says in verse 27, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. And that presents a problem for a lot of people because they look at that and say, Jesus called that woman a dog. How could Jesus do such a thing? Now, a couple of things are going on here. One is she already knew that's what the Jews thought about her. 
So before she ever showed up in Jesus' presence, she's done a lot of mental thinking about this. Can I, who am considered a dog by Jews, go to this man? And there's something about this man that says yes. So she still goes. And when he calls her the dog in this particular passage and, and talks about that, did you notice that she didn't shrug it off at all? Have you ever uh, even mildly critiqued somebody who's self-righteous? Have you ever done that? They don't respond very well to that. They become, some of you are looking at your spouses right now. We're not going to do that. Uh, we become, uh, I'll say we become self-righteous people. We become defensive and then we go on the war path. How, who do you think you are, right? We can't bear to have somebody else do that. The Pharisees could not respond to Jesus saying, let me explain you to you. But when Jesus says this about her being a dog, she responds a very different way. She says, verse 28, yes. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumb. So what is she doing? She's, she's responding with humility. She didn't refuse, but instead she spoke about the grace of God. Yes, I should not be allowed to the table, but you are the master who even lets dogs eat the crumbs that fall to the floor. That's what you're like. And then Jesus responds in, in verse 29 this way. He says, for such a reply or for, for this statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. Now, what's going on here in this passage? The, the way we have to understand what's going on with Jesus and this woman goes back to what he was saying to, to the Pharisees previously and, and about the, the interaction with the Pharisees. He says it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. What just came out of this woman's mouth? What came out of her? A statement of faith. A, a humble heart, a heart that sees her needs. She was honest with herself. She expressed great humility. She confessed. She expressed need, dependence. And so everything she pursued had failed her. And so she comes to Jesus because he's the only hope. And she trusts him, at least at this moment. Well, do you think we're going to see her in heaven? I think we probably will. Um, I think it was Louis Palau who said, one interaction with Jesus is enough to change a person's entire life. I think that's true. I think we probably will see her. And so what we see is this. God's grace does not come to people who morally outperform others, but to others who admit, to those who admit their failure to perform and who acknowledge their need for a savior. Michael Reeves said this. He said, Christians are people who have given up all claims to both our badness and our goodness and have instead gotten Jesus. Faith is leaving it all completely in God's hands and saying, I don't have any righteousness. All I can have is the righteousness that comes from Jesus. And if that's happened for you, bless that day. Bless that day. If that's happened for you, that was God's blessing to you. That was God's grace. That was a gift for you to stop trying so hard to earn it for yourself. You just can't. And if it hasn't happened for you yet, pray that it would, even though it's a horrible experience to go through for a lot of people. I was reminded this week as I was putting together this, this sermon 
of a pastor, a guy who was a pastor in our denomination, he is again now, a guy named Skip Ryan, he was a pastor out in Texas and Dallas, and uh, he's got a video online where he talks about his story, and uh, when he was younger, he was a pastor in uh, Virginia, and then this opening came at this prestigious church in Dallas, so he moved his family to, I think it's Dallas, is it Dallas? I think it's Dallas. Um, somebody said yes, so where, where are we going to put him? It was in Alaska, it was, it, was, uh, it was in Dallas. So he moved his family to this church, and he, he said this at the very beginning of the video. He said, I think it's fair to say that I learned to be dishonest at an early age. Not cash register dishonest. I was dishonest at a much deeper level. You know where you, somebody gives you too much change back and you like give them the change? He said it was deeper. I learned that performance was, I learned that performance was very important. I learned that being able to impress people was very important. And that stayed with him his whole life. So his whole life, he's very performance-oriented. And he's judging himself and his value as a person by his performance. And this didn't just include in school. He ended up going to Harvard and other places. But this included his spiritual life as well. So when he's called to be a pastor, he's, he's, he's a performer. He, he is very good at his job. He's a very good preacher. And he gets all kinds of accolades from people. It was fantastic. And he was very good at his job. So when he went to this church in, in Texas... The church grew. People were growing in his church. They praised him as his pastor. But all the while, he's beginning to nurse this prescription drug habit. And so this goes on for years. So finally, he and his wife, at one point, uh, he's, he's giving support to a friend of his who was going into a, a kind of a rehab facility. And he and his wife were there as a, to support the friend. And so it wasn't about him at all. But as they're there, one of the counselors in the program came up to Skip Ryan, and he said, uh, he asked the question, he said, you're a minister. Who is your God? And Skip Ryan said, um, I'm a Christian minister. My God is the God of the Bible. And then the counselor looked at him and said, oh, no, your God is drugs. And Skip Ryan said he had no idea how this man knew this. He said, I guess he, he was a paid professional. He could just see something in me. Um, and he said, when the man said that, it, it was like a, a knife went to his heart. And he said to his wife, I need to be here. So he enrolled in this program for seven weeks. And in doing so, his drug addiction became public. And he lost his job in the church. He said he lost his reputation. Uh, he lost uh, almost everything he even almost lost his family. Martin Luther said this. He said, we must come to the end of ourselves before we are ready to receive the grace of God. And that's what Skip Ryan said happened to him. Is he enrolled in the program and he called it the great crash. Everything around him crashed. Everything around him burned. And for the first time, he was free because he couldn't earn other people's good opinion. Other people could not give the verdict not guilty or fantastic or justified. He had to look to Jesus alone, and this is what he said. He said, I had to go back to square one. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to know how I am loved by Jesus and for that love to overflow with love for other people. But it starts with understanding that Jesus loves me apart from anything that I have done. So let the gospel speak to you for just a moment. Jesus is the real rescuer of people. You can't rescue yourself. 
Don't go to Jesus with your resume. Go with your neediness. Go with your, your confession. Go with your repentance. Religion just leaves us feeling guilty for everything we haven't done. It sends us out in guilt and shame and an in, a basic insecurity about our relationship with God, wondering if we've done enough. And so it begins to distort everything that we do in the Christian life. For instance, why do we pray? We're pray we pray because we're terrified that if we don't, God is going to smite us. And the Bible commands for us to pray. And if you think that you have to pray for God to accept you, then that will be kind of the underlying motivation. But if you realize that God already accepts you in Jesus Christ, it changes the reason why you pray. We pray because God is the greatest person in the universe. And he's lo he loves us. He's adopted us. He sent his son to die for us. He poured out his spirit upon us. He's made promises to us, and he has entered into eternal fellowship with us, and he promises that when we pray, he bends his ear to us as a father to his child because he loves us. Why do we share our faith with other people? Because we're probably going to go to hell if we don't. No, that's not what the scripture says. Why do we tell others? Because we have encountered and received the grace that we, in our doubts about and hostility towards God, never expected in a million years. And upon hearing it, found that God was more loving and life-giving than we ever dared imagine or hope. And we received the rescue of our souls from slavery to guilt and our sins. He is so good. And we want other people to know this God who's been so good to us. So, we, uh, it changes all the motivations for the Christian life. And it changes why we do what we do. And it also changes what we do. And that's what we see here as well, an incredible change. In, uh, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees here, he talked about uh, the way that they were not loving their parents. Honor your father and your mother. And they're, they're, giving these, they're making these promises of this thing called Corban, which is a vow to give a portion of your money to set it apart of your goods and say, this can only be used for God, right? And that sounds very spiritual. But Jesus calls them on that and says, this is not about what you say it's about, Right? This is hypocrisy. You are neglecting the real law of God for these rules. So now all the laws that he mentions here in 21 to 28, 22, these sins that are mentioned, you know, that are coming out. When the, law give, when the law is talking to us, it's not just giving us rules. The law is explaining to us, and it's a tutorial on what love really is all about. Right? So when the Bible says, do not murder, guess what he's saying? Love people enough not to murder them, right? So it's telling us the bare minimum. If you love somebody, don't kill them. That's kind of how that works. So or when it says, do not steal, what's it saying? If you love somebody, you're not going to take what belongs to them. Or do not lie, right? Do not bear false witness. What it's saying is if you love somebody, you're going to tell the person the truth and not withhold the truth in a way that's going to hurt or harm them. You see that, right? And so when he says this about honoring your father and your mother... Uh, he's really saying, you're not loving your parents, right? And I've thought about this. Like, what is it about Corban, Corban that, uh, that, uh, it, that they would give, donate money to the church or to the synagogue and withhold that from their parents? And I thought, why would they do something like that? And he doesn't give us any uh, help necessarily here about why they would do that. 
So I've kind of dug around in some other passages of Scripture to think, why might they be doing this? In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he says, do not be like the Pharisees who give gifts to the poor and announce it with trumpets in the street. You know, I'm tooting my own horn. Did you see me give that gift? Do, 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 do. Did, y'all, did you see that? So, some of you nodded like you saw, you saw me do the trumpet thing. That's not what I was talking about. So, do you understand the passage? I'll do it again later on, but not now. Um, so, it's possible that these people were going to the Jewish leaders and making a vow publicly. Otherwise, the Jewish leaders couldn't hold them responsible for it. But in order to do that, in order to do that, they had to make that public vow. And in order to do that, they had to say, that's not going to my parents. So in other words, my parents are going to love me no matter what. But I need to earn the reputation of these people that are in authority and power. Maybe that's it. And maybe we can relate to something like that. Then again, maybe it has something to do with inheritance, right? You're having to take care of your aging parents, which means that comes out of my pocket, my prestige, and the things that I own. So maybe that's the problem. But regardless of the, whatever's going on here, Jesus is saying the commandment that God has given you, which is to love your parents, you are not listening to him. And you're even trying to use God himself as an excuse not to do what God has told you and called you to do. So when you look and you see God loving us who are undeserving, Even if you might think that your parents are undeserving, the Bible says we're called to love our parents because that's what God has told us to do. And if he can love us who are unworthy of love, then we love our parents who we might consider at times to have, uh, we have daddy issues, just to say, we have mommy issues, but he calls us to love the best that we can within the context of what we're doing. Now I know for some of us, it's kind of like, okay, that's very broad. How do we bring that in a little more? Well, maybe, you know, for some of us, maybe I've, I've lost both of my parents, and it's like, phew, that, that commandment has nothing to do with me anymore. Uh, but probably, in this light, uh, he's pushing us a little bit further to say it's not just about loving your parents, it's about loving the people that are providentially around you. So from the first, when you're born, your parents are providentially the people who are there. Love them. And if they're gone, if your parents aren't there, and you have children and and siblings and friends and people that are part of your community love the people around you very well the world is broken the world is fallen let's love one another very well let me show you a picture of how this works uh, let's go back to skip ryan for a moment i'm sure he loves that we're talking about him this morning he told his story publicly so it's it's good i'm not um i didn't call him and ask him but i did ask Catherine about telling her story here so while Skip Ryan was being very successful in, in uh, pastoral ministry, there was a person who was very central to his life that he was beginning to neglect, and their relationship was falling apart, and that was his wife. He was so busy uh, being a good pastor and loving everybody else that his marriage was falling apart. And part of that had to do with when they got married. They were both very strong people, type A personalities, and they both always had to be right. So they always fought, he said, about who was right. All of their conversations were about who was right in this. And so um, their marriage began to fall apart. And for her, God, she said this in the video, for her, what God did is he brought, he allowed her to go into a deep depression. She was doing great one day and then the next day she was in the depression. 
And the reason she said is because God was breaking her of thinking, I can succeed and do life very well so that I don't need him. So that was part of her story. But for him, meanwhile, uh, he's withdrawing from the marriage, withdrawing from the relationship, withdrawing from family. He's withdrawing from people. He's looking more and more to drugs to try to deal with his problem. But that, drugs weren't his root problem. That was just how he's nursing his hurt and his pain, the headaches he was getting from all the pressure and the stress that he put on himself all the time. So when he went into rehab for seven weeks, began to deal with the drug addiction, he also began to deal with his heart before God and recognized he was using the praise of all these other people in his performance to do what only Jesus could do, which is what the Pharisees do, which is what we do, is we're justified by grace through faith in the verdict that other people give about us. If people think we're okay, I must really be okay. So he was doing that. But when all that was stripped away and he was left only with the grace of God in his life, that changed the way he stepped back into his marriage. Because he stepped back in, not with his wife in the way of, you know, all the people who were praising him and giving him the righteousness he felt like he needed, but he didn't need that anymore. Because the only place he could find it was in Jesus. I don't need the praise of other people because I have the affection and love and the righteousness of Jesus. And so years later, they're doing this video together and talking about how they've been through this. And they both said that it's better now than it's ever been. Their relationship is better than it has ever been because they dealt with the sin and the brokenness in their hearts. The gospel. We are justified by grace through faith. We are forgiven for all the sins, but we're also transformed by the same gospel. When we see the God of the universe loving us even though we're undeserving, that changes our hearts so that we begin to love others even though they may, we may feel like they're undeserving. We love them just as Christ has loved us. Let me pray. Uh, we're so grateful that you showed us in the mirror that we are just like the Pharisees, looking for a righteousness by what we do. And we're so glad at the same time you've showed us the, the reality of our lives that are like this woman, that we have nothing that would enable us to earn righteousness ourselves. So we pray that you would enable us to lean upon you alone, to see in your great love and your mercy and grace a righteousness, an acceptance, a love that far out, uh, outstrips anything that we could have earned on our own, and to relax and rest fully and completely in Jesus our Savior. Would you bless us, and would you be with us, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.